Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. Hey all, welcome back, Startup Growing Global Podcast. This is Chris Jonu. Today you're in for a treat, as always. Uh, maybe more so today. We have Elad Gill, technology entrepreneur, investor, writer, advisor, and I loved every minute of the chat. I'm sure you will too. Super smart guy, intimidating really, um, very articulate, and for the most part, I just try and let him talk. Um, in terms of his bio, uh, aside from the PhD he has, um, he started his career at Google, helped scale their mobile team, founds a company called Mixer Labs that uh, goes on to be acquired by Twitter, where he also helps Twitter scale as one of their VP, VPs, and founds a company called Color. Um, in terms of his investments, I've got, got a list of you here. Airbnb, Airtable, Coinbase, Instacart, Pinterest, Square, Stripe, where he invests oftentimes as an angel investor, also advise, advises a bunch of those companies. So incredible investor, incredible entrepreneur, very knowledgeable about a lot of things. You'll, you'll in, really enjoy the conversation. Cheers. Elad, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Oh, good. Thanks. Thanks so much for including me today. Um, today, you know, I just want to kind of go through your journey and then get into to some of the, um, the learning. Um, and... Um, I often try and take the, you know, my um, guests back a little bit. Um, and I, I start with the question, was there a mother or father that was an entrepreneur? Um, you know, I think fundamentally um, my parents uh, were both immigrants. And I think that in and of itself is an entrepreneurial journey. But, you know, nobody in my family, in terms of immediate family, has started a company. Um, you know, my grandfather um, started a butcher shop in Israel. And before that he was, um, doing different things in business, but, you know, fundamentally I didn't grow up in a, in a household where people were starting things all the time or anything like that. And, and where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up all over. I grew up, um, I was born in, uh, Israel, lived in Michigan, Arizona, um, San Diego, Boston, Bay area. Um, so kind of all over the place, at least from a U.S. perspective. Was that from mom and dad's jobs or how, what was that? Yeah, I think, um, I think they had a variety of things that they wanted to see in terms of the country and things like that. So we kind of moved around a bit. And, and, um, and then, so after that, um, what was, what was the education? I'm just trying to give a bit of context to the audience for people that may, may not know Elad Gill. Sure. Um, so I have, um, undergrad degrees in math and biology. And then I have a PhD in biology from MIT. And, um, you know, my academic background includes around eight or nine years working um, at, 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 the, at the bench as a biologist as well um, on things like gene delivery into the adult brain, so gene therapy. I worked briefly in an HIV lab. Um, I worked on aging. So I worked on a, in a lab that was at the intersection of aging, cancer, and um, into insulin so you know longevity clocks and things like that so um yeah a variety of things cool and where, where, where were you where were you based then 
Uh, yeah, I did my PhD at MIT in Boston. And then how do you make it to, 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 to uh, the West Coast? Uh, yeah, so um, I realized um, most of the way through my PhD that I didn't want to be an academic. And I thought that technology was a sort of um, really positive force that was kind of uh, sweeping through as the first internet wave was, was coming to a crescendo. And so um, I got very interested in becoming involved with the technology industry and um, software and um, all that. And the best place in the world to do that was the Bay Area. And so initially I just moved out and I um, slept on a friend of a friend's couch in the Mission District and uh, searched for jobs. Um, so they were kind enough to let me just stay with them rent free because I, I had no money. And um, eventually I talked my way into a software job and you know, one thing led to another. What was that job? Um, eventually I worked at a startup uh, called Oneta, which was a telecom equipment company that was, um, I joined when I was about 120 people, it grew to 150, and then it shrank to 15 people over five rounds of layoffs as the sort of um, dot-com bubble was collapsing. And um, then I worked uh, at a few software companies as a consultant, and then eventually I made my way to Google and um, helped start the mobile team there and you know contribute to different early efforts there. Can, can you talk a little bit about, about that, right? So you come, you come across, um, you know, from academia, then stay on your friend's lounge, manage to, to kind of get you that first role in tech, um, go through what sounds like an interesting ride, um, scale up, a bunch of layoffs, um, then over to Google. Um, how, how did that transition take place? Um, you know, at the time, um, there was a very large number of layoffs. And so it was extremely hard to get any sort of um, job in tech because, you know, people who were VP product at a startup where they'd run a, you know, 20 person team were suddenly um, interviewing for individual product management roles because there just weren't any jobs in the Bay Area. And so there was a huge outflux during that period. And so you kind of had to beg or talk your way into, into work. Um, and so there's enormous uh, numbers of people who left the Bay Area during that period. And then eventually that kind of cleared out a little bit. And one of the very few companies that was hiring at any scale at that time was Google. And so Google was lucky in that it had this, um, had access to this ridiculous pool of talent um, out of the startup world at a time when very few other people were hiring. You know, a couple of years later, Facebook started hiring out of a smart pool and things like that. But for probably two, three years, Google was really the sort of um, main interesting high growth company that sucked up all the good people. And that created a really interesting culture inside because it meant that, you know, on average, you were surrounded by a lot more founders than you normally would at a company of that stage. And you had enormous talent density because they really had their pick of who they wanted to bring on board. And so that's why I think so many people from that era at Google had um, really great careers. Um, in parallel, there's actually all sorts of studies that have shown that if you graduate into a recession, um, instead of good times, on average, your career is set back many years, or you never really catch up from an earning potential. And so there's a whole generation there that probably had a really bad um, or, or diminished outcome uh, simply because of when they entered the job market. And um, yeah, I'm just thinking about, you know, today's situation while you're saying that. Um, yeah, today's the opposite, what, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, what what did Google look like as you as you as you walk through the door in those early days? You know, um, it was a very non-hierarchical organization at the time. Um, Larry had just removed all the middle managers because he decided that middle managers were not useful. 
And so each eng director, for example, had between 50 to 100 reports, direct reports. Um, and there was no management, middle management layer, which means nobody ever met with their boss, right? Because your boss would um, have to do 100 101s a year, just, you know, or, or per cycle, just you couldn't find time to do that. And so um, it meant, first of all, you needed people who could sort of drive themselves because um, if you were in a self-starter, you'd kind of drown in that context, right? Because nobody was telling you what to do or what to go work on. And it also created an enormous gray market for talent because since your boss didn't know what you were doing, you could just go work on anything that somebody could convince you of doing. And so for me, that was a really positive thing because when I started up the mobile efforts, um, I was able to convince people to come and join me and start working on it with or without their managerial approval in some cases because their managers um, weren't really paying attention to what they were doing. And so a lot of the really early mobile engineers were people that I coached from other teams who started working with me on the, on the mobile efforts. What, what, what were some of those projects you were working on with the mobile team? Oh yeah, it's all the really early mobile stuff. It was mobile Gmail and mobile maps. And, um, you know, eventually we bought Android. And so, you know, it was, uh, I think at the time I, I started working in the area, there was half a person um, on mobile for all of Google dedicated to um, keeping up an old WAP server, which is a really old, you know, uh, crappy, old school markup language for phones. Um, and, you know, it was kind of WAP and J2ME apps and things like that. I mean, it was a pretty terrible world back then um, from a mobile perspective. And then of course the iPhone kind of blew everything open and um, Android quickly followed in. And so I think, um, you know, you really have to credit Apple with breaking the, the telecom monopolies and excuse me, the oligopoly, which prevented, um, you know, a rich app ecosystem and a rich sort of data ecosystem and the use of GPS and all these things that we now take for granted. And, and then, and then, so again, another, another company where, you know, just incredible scale, I imagine. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of, can we, can we talk about that for a little bit before we jump onto, you know, some of the, uh, the, the projects you've, the startups you co-founded, can you just talk about how like scale worked in inside Google? Yeah, I mean, Google went from um, 1,500 to about 15,000 people over three and a half years while I was there. And so they added 13 and a half thousand people <laughs> during a very short period of time. So the enormous of, uh, period of enormous growth. And I actually think it's the period that in some sense Stripe is going through right now, where you finally have enough people that you can work on lots and lots of really interesting new product areas and initiatives and business things. Um, but you're still small enough that you can largely get to know most of the people um, that are doing interesting things within the organization. And you have a very motivated entrepreneurial team that feels like it can win, but that its best days are still ahead of it. And so if you look, for example, at Stripe right now, you see this you know, rapid, almost Cambrian-like explosion of different products that they're offering across multiple product lines. And I think that was basically Google from somewhere around 2003 or 2004 until, I don't know, 2008, 2009, something like that. And so it's sort of the pre-ossification period. And that meant that um, a, the company was was scaling so rapidly that every six to nine months there was a new reorg, because suddenly um, if you go from 1,500 people to 3,000 people in six months or whatever it is, um, you have an entirely new company in some sense, right? Uh, not only had half the people not been there in the prior year, but it's at such a scale that you have to keep realigning the organization, hiring new executives, promoting people from within. 
And so it's a very turbulent period if you're inside it, right? Because your peer is suddenly your boss's boss six months later, and then you do a reorg, and then a different person's their boss, and everything just keeps shifting around. And then you have a new product area, and the product group merges with another product group. And so it feels very discombobulating early on. And then eventually you just get used to it, you know, after the fourth or fifth reorg, or, you know, if you don't get used to it, you probably leave, right? Because you, you, um, <laughs> you can't keep up with it. Um, and in general, when you see hyper growth companies, it's kind of always the same thing. You know, you first have a lot of churn at the executive team level, and then that kind of stabilizes and those reorgs grow away a little bit. And then you have a lot of churn on the next level down as each executive kind of really solidifies their team. And part of that is just hiring, you know, you don't have the human capacity initially, but part of it is also just that every six months or 12 months, you're operating at a different scale in a subset of the people, the executives, the managers, whatever it may be kind of break in their ability to deal with that scale. So you need to, you need to replace them or layer them. Um, and so it's very natural to see this turnover when something's growing very, very fast. And then eventually you hit the right people and you don't grow at the same compounding rate, or at least the numbers that you're absorbing are more um, reasonable. And then things really settle down. And that's when you have longer term stability of teams. And that's you know, Google right now or Facebook right now or Apple right now, you, you know, they go through these periods of immense stability uh, because they're no longer changing as rapidly. So what is the, I mean, this is a question you, you, you wrote a book about, but uh, what is the key to, to getting those reorgs right? Or is, is it just the people and then their adaptability or is it a matter of timing or what, what are, can you just maybe yeah. light on a few of those things? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's um, three general principles to think about. Number one is um, org charts are an exercise in pragmatism. There's often not one single right answer. This is a set of trade-offs based on the people, the things you want to accomplish, everything else. And so, you know, often you have to choose between two or three possibilities. And sometimes there's no right choice. You just have to choose and move on. Um, second uh, is... Um, who the people are really does matter enormously and um, people will break at, at successive levels of scale. And so um, often you'll find that a, a reasonable chunk of your management team turns over if you scale up 5X or 10X or you know, going from hundred people to a thousand people is a massive exercise in scaling. And the way that you communicate changes dramatically because suddenly, you know, if you think about it, um, an organization with 10 people, everybody can talk to everybody and everybody can talk to the CEO. If you have 100 people, on average, you have three or four layers between the CEO and any one given person. And if you're at 1,000 people, you add two to three more layers on top of that at least, right? And so that layering really changes how communication filters up and down in an organization. It changes whether you can know everybody. It changes in terms of the degree of trust each person has for each other or different subunits or geos or whatever have for each other. And so you have all these enormous changes with each level of scale and different people can or cannot manage about that level. And so different people start to break down over time. Um, you know, separate from that, there's the question of how do you do a rework well? And that's often more about, uh, which I think was your original question. And that's more about having a lot of clarity in terms of who's gonna be doing what, making a decision on that, and then communicating it very rapidly throughout an organization. And so the last thing you wanna do is tell everybody, hey, we're gonna do a reorg and we're gonna let everybody know what's gonna happen in a month or two because people start politicking and lobbying and a lot of productive work stops as people try to sort out who's gonna be driving what and trying to grab ownership for things. And it's much better to just do a rollout of a reorg in a day where you tell everybody, this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it and who's, here's who's in charge where. 
And if you have any issues, talk to one of these two people. And so you kind of want to um, consolidate reorgs into very short periods of time to remove uncertainty. Yeah, that was it, it kind of leads to my next question. Um, so yeah, I, I, the question was really, how do you balance then, um, you know, me getting my head around that new role um, while still trying to keep, um, I guess, these pockets of innovation within the organization happening and, and, and successful? Yeah, I mean, most people won't have a new role necessarily. It's just the individual that they roll up into will change. Um, okay. Or, you know, a few things get swapped around because you're like, okay, we're going from aligning around functions to aligning around products. So instead of, you know, all the engineers reporting into the same VP of Eng, we're now going to have three VP of Engs into three different product groups, right? And we're going to matrix product in or we're going to have product direct line reporting, whatever it is, right? And so, um, you know, usually when you do a reorg, you don't change everything about everything because there's no, there's no reason to, right? Usually it's more about certain leadership changes or certain sets of portfolios of things that people are responsible for swapping around a bit. And that, that's usually because you have a new product initiative, so you need to align around it. You need to align sales with product and engine. And so, you know, you need to have little subgroups or it could be because you're hitting a certain scale or it could be because a key person isn't scaling and you need to fix things. And so you need to change who, who owns what. Like there's all sorts of reasons that drives why you change something. And is there any element of like, um, you know, Debbie would be great in this role, but, um, you know, there's some sort of training element that you're trying to, to try, try and help them rather than just kind of rule people out or rule people across? If, if you know um, what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think ultimately you see companies do a mix of like promoting from within and hiring people from without. And um, I think ultimately that mix makes a lot of sense. I think what happens is if a company is growing really slow, you have a lot of time to train people, right? Because it's not like you're tripling every year and you have to deal with, you need people who know what they're doing to deal with everything, right? Because when you're tripling every year, or 5Xing every year or whatever it is, you don't really have time for people to learn on the job because the clock is moving so fast. Yep. And so in general, you want more experienced people for a certain level of scale um, during those periods of intense expansion. And you'll always find the amazing people who can scale indefinitely and they just keep going with the company and you don't need to replace them. Um, but a lot of people aren't that. Uh, the flip side of it is when you're growing much slower, you're growing 30% a year or 50% a year, it's much easier to train people on the job because their job isn't changing that much day to day. They don't suddenly, they didn't suddenly go from five people to 30 people working from them. Uh, for them, they went from five people to seven people. And so that's really easy to cope with and learn. And then, you know, a big step is often when you go from managing seven people directly to managing 30 people with a few direct reports in between, right? You're managing managers and what does that mean? You know, so there's these sort of steps that are big transitions for people. And if those steps are happening in a slow growth environment and slow growth is fast by any other metric, it just means slow growth for a breakout company, um, then you're fine. And what you find is within different parts of your company, there will be areas that are growing really fast. And in those cases, you want people who may be more experienced and can really scale. And you have other pockets that may be in the same discipline and may still be engineering, but it's growing more slowly. And there may be more leeway for those people to learn on the job. And so you end up with this mix. I ask, um, and and I'll jump around a bit to, to you know Twitter and, and and color as we go as well. But um, how do you then 
Um, do you, can I talk about the interna internationalization of a company for a little bit? Um, sure. Yeah. So if, does that, how, how does that strategy look, um, I guess, in your opinion? And then does that, do you, if you're having any trouble with um, hiring engineers or whatever, does that become part of the international strategy? How, how do you kind of, I know every company is different, but generally, like, if you could talk about this, you know, scaling internationally and how that. Yeah, how usually when you scale internationally, there's a few different types of scaling. In some cases, it's we're basically selling the same product, but we're translating some strings in the UI. So it's in the local language and then we're bringing on board sales teams regionally. That's one type of scaling internationally. There's a separate type of scaling internationally, which is we have to really build custom products that are specific to a geo or region. You know, people in Japan use this social product radically different and therefore we need to do these three new things, right? Um, or the carriers in, in uh, Korea don't allow for these features and so we need to tweak things in these two ways. And so usually when you end up with um, region-specific engineering, it's because you have region-specific product changes that you need to make that are very important product changes. Or you're just trying to tap into a global workforce and it's making hiring easier and you found good pockets and you think you can build engineering teams there. Usually when you do that latter, because in the former case, if it's just people who are regionalizing a product in specific ways, it's really easy to break out standalone work for them, right? You know exactly that the, the Korean engineers are going to work on Korean products or CGK. CJK is usually what people do, right? China, Japanese, Korean languages and sort of a regional bucket sometimes, although obviously China is very different and Japan is very different and Korea is very different. Um, uh, but um, the place where you often have trouble from an engineering alignment perspective is you set up an office in Berlin and you set up an office in London and you set up an office in um, Tokyo and you set up a bunch of offices in the US and you set up an office in you know Sydney or wherever. And, um, and you don't have a clean division of who's working on what. And you're like, oh, we're gonna spread the ads product or the data infrastructure across these seven teams. And then you have giant coordination issues. And so eventually where companies end up, if they're just internationalizing for hiring, um, in other words, finding good pockets of people to work on gen generic product, um, is they tend to fragment or shard what piece of the product is being worked on where to minimize coordination and to minimize um, competition between teams across the world. So people can function more independently against their goals. Um, so it really depends on what you're trying to do. Are you trying to localize? Or are you trying to contribute to core product, but you're just doing it in a more distributed manner? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, was, I interviewed um, Vlad from Webflow last week, and he's, you know, he said uh, um, he was the reason we were hiring engineers everywhere is we couldn't afford them in the in the Bay, right? We were, we were wow. kind of remote first by accident, you know. Um, yeah. And the remote first stuff I think is happening in part because of COVID, because if you look at, um, you know, the remote first companies prior to COVID, there was only three who ever hit any real scale that I know of. There was Zapier, which was a couple hundred people at the time. Now it's obviously bigger. GitLab. Um, I was actually an angel investor in their seed when they were just a handful of people and now they're over a thousand, right? And then Automatic, the makers of WordPress. But other than that, all the remote first companies prior to COVID were under 100 people. They were, you know, the biggest were like 50 people or something. Um, and so it was a very overstated trend. Um, what you usually had was a set of uh, 
main offices. And then you had a smattering of people kind of spread around the world that could work remotely and were effective that way. And with COVID, we've had this massive shift where um, companies were forced to shut down um, uh, their physical offices. And that meant that um, you had to build out more of a remote culture and remote tooling and everything else. And I think it'll be very interesting to watch who snaps back and how. And I'm still much more bullish on office-centric teams in terms of smaller uh, organizations mm -hmm. um, versus companies that are truly remote first, because I think being remote comes with a big cost. Now, if you have raw and sheer product market fit, of course you can overcome that cost because the product market fit is so strong, it kind of doesn't matter what you do, right? There's all sorts of terribly run companies that do incredibly well, irrespective of what they do, right? Um, uh, but, um, you know, I think in a competitive environment, uh, sometimes actually having an office is a good thing. And if the Bay Area costs are too high, what people traditionally have done is they just said, okay, we're gonna open a Waterloo office and we're gonna open a, you know, New York office. And we're, you know, we're just gonna set up pockets where it's still, um, it's kind of pseudo centralized. Yep. But we'll see, um, it's an uncertain future. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm coming maybe from a different headspace. I'm in Melbourne in lockdown right now. Um, but can I switch gears for a second and, and talk about, you know, what, what's next after, after Google? Where, where did you land after that? Sure. So after Google, I went to Twitter. Um, I actually started a company, I should say, after Google, which is a data infrastructure company. And that was acquired by Twitter um, back in 2009. And at the time, Twitter was about 90 people. Um, we started talking to them and there were 50 people. And three months later, there were 90 when they bought us. Um, and... Uh, I then helped take that company from about 90 to about 1500 over two and a half years. And then I was a consultant for another year as it grew to um, around 2,500 people. And, and, and what was, what were some of the similarities, I guess, or I guess this led again, kind of helped lead, lead to the book, but what, what were some of the challenges and what were some of the, the learnings from the scale this time around? Yeah, I think the big difference this time around was um, I was truly a member of the executive team. So I was one of the CEO's um, main lieutenants. And I had a bit of a fixer role because a lot of the company was very broken. Um, and so I got involved with either scaling things that weren't in place or that were in place but needed uh, future growth. So for example, one of the members of my team went and helped um, uh, change how recruiting works so that they could hire 100 people a month. Um, the M&A team started working for me, so we bought, you know, 12, 15 companies during that period. I got involved with user growth international, so Japan market and other markets. Um, uh, just a big grab bag of stuff, you know, to help the company scale up operationally and organizationally. Can you, like, that's, that's quite a bit to cover in that, in that few sentences, Eli. Can you, can, you, can you elaborate a little bit more on, like, say, the M&A component or um, um, trying to fix inefficiencies while you're scaling. I'd love to just hear about. Yeah, I think um, in today's era, companies oddly stay a little bit too much in their lanes and they don't do as many team buys as many sort of breakout companies should. Um, and so at Twitter, um, I basically ended up uh, building out a framework for M&A where we had um, in our minds four types of acquisitions. There was team buys, so you're just adding talent. Um, and you know, for some period of time, 20 to 30% of all of Twitter engineering hiring came through M&A. Um, in other words, we fueled a lot of growth on the end side and it helped bring in really entrepreneurial talent, which was good. Um, 
The second area would be product buys. And by product buys, I mean you're helping to fill holes in the product roadmap that you can justify. So if you bring in a team that's doing email spam and you have seven people who know it very well, you can reposition them to work on ad spam, which was a Twitter product. And you had a clear ROI in terms of revenue or impact or whatever. Um, and so you'd buy teams that you then reposition into adjacent holes of things that you need filled on the product side. That's the second type of buy. And we did quite a few of those. The third type is big strategic bets, right? That's buying um, Instagram or you know some of these players um, that Twitter made a run at during that period, uh, which would have been game-changing for the company. Obviously it was game-changing for Facebook instead. And then lastly, you have, um, and so those are big strategic assets and those are you know YouTube for Google or things like that. Uh, and then lastly, um, and Twitter didn't really do this, although some companies do this, um, you have sort of quote unquote synergies or consolidation. And those are like the private equity backed rollups, right? Where you go and you buy things and you get scale and you squeeze out cost or whatever it may be. And those types of acquisitions have a very different type of characteristic in terms of how you think about them. Um, so at Twitter, we did um, the first three types of M&A. And while I was there, you know, the team was very aggressive about it. And where, where, where can you name a couple of those? Like, uh, say, from the talent side? I mean, there was a lot of them. We were doing, you know, I think at the peak, like two or three acquisitions a month. You know, we were doing a lot of M&A. Um, and do you, is that, is that geo-focused again? Like trying to keep everything? Uh, we bought things that were both um, in the U.S., but we also bought things, uh, and by U.S., I mean, it was mainly Bay Area and New York at the time, although I'm sure there's acquisitions elsewhere. And then we bought, um, you know, uh, TweetDeck, which was in the U.K. We bought, um, we bought a variety of things, you know, so I don't, I don't remember the entire geo. No, no, that's fine. And, and, then, and then, so what, so... Okay, so this is second second time around, you know, buying businesses, solving problems, all, all the all the all the usual. And then does it does it just kind of get to a point for you where you're at the top and things are running smoothly and you kind of miss the chaos and you on to the next one? Um, you know, I think I started um, my next company, Color, for three reasons. Um, one is you know, it was driven by a very, and color is basically like a population health and um, care delivery platform. And so it started off focused more on uh, genomics and cancer and it's morphed now to, you know, it drives the central um, testing lab in California uh, for COVID testing, like it's software drives it, or, you know, it's driving a lot of vaccine delivery for entire states in the US and things like that. Um, and so it's really this, this broader based virtualized care delivery platform, but it started off um, focused on cancer and in particular breast and ovarian cancer related genetics. And the reason for that is um, my co-founder who is currently CEO of the company as well um, is himself a BRCA2 carrier. So he has a mutation in the gene that increases his own risks of certain types of cancer. Um, but those are also, um, uh, the genetics also very strongly impacts um, uh, uh, women and their cancers. And so, you know, very large increase in breast and ovarian cancer, which meant multiple members of his family who had the same gene mutation got um, really, in some cases, bad uh, cases of, of breast or ovarian cancer. And um, so we really started the company in part to address a very personal need. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, you know, in part, that's one of the reasons eventually, amongst other reasons they took over as CEO was just, it was really his mission, you know, and I was trying to help and, you know, I have a PhD in biology so I could understand the science and all the rest of it. But, you know, fundamentally his personal story was a really big driver of the establishment of that company. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but, but did you, so that was back to kind of getting back to your, your love on the, on the, on the science side. Was well yeah, I, mean, I, I, uh, I really like um, uh, not hashtag science, but actual real science. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, uh, you know, I really enjoy biology. I spent, as mentioned, like eight or nine years actually working as a bench biologist. And so I knew the molecular biology and all the rest of it really well. And can I, can I ask, um, and, and I want to dig a bit deeper on color as well, but um, yeah, sorry. So just in terms of timeline, I wasn't, wasn't quite ready for the, uh, for color. I wouldn't quite ask the question the way I did. Um, but switching Switching gears once again to your invest, you're now wearing your investment hat. How did how did these kind of um, how did this come about? And was it kind of like companies you love, or you know, they people coming to you with you know, asking for mentorship? How do you start to string together these incredible investments and advisory roles? Yeah, I think a lot of my investing um, started very organically. So when I left Google, I um, was starting my own company and many of my friends were founders, you know, and the, the people I spent all my time with were other people starting companies. And so we would just gossip a lot about different things, like which investors are giving which terms and who's helpful, which angel actually helps you out. Um, you know, what are good pools to hire out of? What are distribution hacks? All that kind of stuff. And so as part of doing that, I started helping um, other founders more and more. And so they just started asking me to invest in their rounds as they came together. And so it was very organic. And so I just started investing in um, the startups of friends of mine or people that I'd met who, uh, you know, we discussed a certain entrepreneurial topic together on. And then they, they'd follow up and say, hey, I really enjoyed our conversation. Can you invest? Um, so it started very organically. And then as... I kept helping those people over time. They started referring me to other people starting starting companies, and so that just kind of led to to me continuing to invest in things. And and do do you still have the love for all things startup? Yeah, I think um, you know I'm one of those people who really believe that uh, technology is fundamentally a very positive force in the world, and I'm very optimistic about the impact of technology on the world. And um, I've used startups as a major vehicle by which that technology is delivered to serve people's needs. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm both philosophically very well aligned with it, um, as well as, you know, it's what I really enjoy. I, I love technology and I love, um, you know, people, a small group of people trying to go out and do something great for the world. And um, what are what are some of your the favorite companies you're, you're dealing with that you're allowed to talk with talk about it at um, at the moment? Oh geez, um, you know I, I can't say that there's a single favorite because I don't want anybody who listens. No, 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 no. just a, a few will be great. Like me or something. I mean, I guess um, maybe what I'll do is I'll um, I'll tell you some of the companies I'm involved with because it's more yeah. the banner names, but that doesn't mean I've actually been helpful to any of these. I think founders are what make companies great, not. Um, they're angels or other investors, but, um, you know, I, 
um, you know, I've invested in this point in around 40 quote unquote unicorns. So companies worth a billion dollars or more and 30 of them were at the seed or series A. And so I invested in Airbnb when it was eight people. I invested in Stripe when it was around seven, eight people. Um, I invested in Notion when it was one person, you know, um, so I've invested, so the list would be like Airbnb, Airtable, Coinbase, Gusto, Instacart, Pinterest, PagerDuty, Stripe, Square, um, uh, a bunch of companies over time. So um, Anduril on the defense side, Samsara on the fleet management side, um, you know, retool for um, on the sort of uh, no code, low code side, et cetera. And what are some of the companies that like maybe, you know, lesser known that you're excited about that are got big missions? Um, there's quite a few. I mean, there's a lot that I'm really excited about in crypto. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the crypto infrastructure side, like, you know, Anchorage for custody or Bitwise for um, uh, sort of index funds and ETFs and asset management. Um, I'm really excited about Ironfish. Um, and the sort of next gen protocol side or things like DYDX. So I just think there's a lot of really cool stuff going on right now. Um, and then obviously there's stuff I wasn't involved with um, very deeply that I think is super interesting like uni and other sort of DeFi protocols. So, um, you know, that'd be an example of, of things that may or may not be mainstream relative to all of tech or obviously mainstream in crypto. And I should say, by the way, that one of the things I like about crypto is I feel like it has the frontier um, techno optimism nature that all of tech used to have. And I feel like much of tech now is um, feeling a bit more jaded and kind of tired and old in part because of journalists covering it. And then in part, just because, you know, you look at the average middle manager at a fame company and they're going to be a very um, high compliance, low openness person. If you look at sort of, you know, what people view as canonical personality traits are almost like the, the government bureaucrats of 50 years ago. And they're very capable, but they're capable in, in some sense in these very conservative ways. Um, and I feel like crypto is one of the communities that really captures that forward-looking frontier spirit that used to characterize all of tech. Love that. Um, and then what, switching back to um, present day, I suppose, Eled, what, what, so now you've kind of taken a step back in color You've got all these advisory roles. Are you just are you just taking taking a break for a while? Is there something you're kind of you know uh, brewing up on the on the side? What what's what's next for Eled Gill? Yeah, I, you know I split my time between four areas. Um, uh, one is uh, you know I'm still on the board of color. Um, two is investing. Um, three is um, every uh, year or two I help somebody else start a company. And so you know last year I helped. Um, this really talented founder, Katsuya Noguchi, start um, a company called Pluto.video, um, which I think is a really interesting sort of um, virtualized event space uh, in your browser company. So I think he's doing really cool stuff. Um, and then lastly, I'm involved with some anti-aging biotech. So can you develop drugs uh, to extend lifespan? And as mentioned, you know, my PhD is in the area. And with my own hands, I've made knockout uh, knockouts of genes in, in organisms and animals, and they've lived, you know, two, three times longer. And so it's very clear that aging is a biological program that you can perturb in a variety of ways. Um, and if you can perturb it, it means you can drug it, but um, there aren't very many drugs on the market yet to address these sorts of things. And so I think that's a very interesting area. Incredible. Pluto video, I'm writing this stuff down and check this out. Um, 
Uh, Eled, thank you very much for taking the time to, to join me today. Really, yeah, appreciate the conversation. Hi, and I'm happy to do it. And thanks so much for uh, uh, chatting with me today. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.